So last time we studied the victories that Israel had at Jericho and Ai, or I, as they entered the land and began the conquest. And we're going to follow that. This was kind of just above the, the Dead Sea, so kind of in central Israel. And um, they're, they're on the far eastern border, kind of there by the Jordan, and they're, gonna, they're making their way across. And they're going to come through um, Jericho. They're going to go up a little bit into Ai. They're going to, in chapter 8, we read about them uh, being in Shechem. We're going to come back to that because we don't hear of any battle there. Um, I don't know if anybody picked up on that last week, but there was no battle at Shechem. They were just there on Mount Ebal and Gerizim, and Shechem's right in the valley there. Um, but today we're going to see that they continue to cut um, through um, the, the middle of the land, um, which is the uh, classic example of divide and conquer. So if you're thinking about you know, them, their nation, they're just slicing it in half. And um, they started in the east, and they're going to be moving to the west, and that's what we'll see as um, we, we pick up the story about the Gibeonites. But then we're also going to see that um, they take nations down in the south, and then they take nations up in the north. So they kind of have a central campaign, they have a southern campaign, and they have a northern campaign, which gives them a great foothold in the country. So we're going to see the borders of each of the tribes, we're going to see the land inheritance that they were given. And what was left over at the end of, the, of kind of Joshua's fighting days? What part was not conquered? And we'll have a map that you can look at for that as well. So without any further introduction, let's look at chapter 9, verse 1. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon... The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins, Torn and mended. These were probably some out of work, like actors or something. It's like, we got a job for you. And you can just see them getting all, all dressed up for this. Um, because they were to drive out the inhabitants of the promised land and to utterly destroy them. So if they were outside of the land, they could make, you know, it was okay to, you know, they'd have to, you know, they weren't fighting the whole world, if you will. God was bringing judgment upon the Amorites, those, all those places we just named. Um, so, they know this, and they, so they want to pretend that they're outside of the land. They're, they're saying, we're, we're far away, so you have no fight with us. Um, so verse 5, old and patched sandals on their feet, old garments on themselves, and the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua, verse 6, to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, so Gilgal is kind of their headquarters right now, we have come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, Oh, you can trust us. We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where did you come from? And they said to him, From a very far country. Your servants have come because of the name of Yahweh your God. 
for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. Well, that's partially true, but they did hear all that. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions, you, for the journey, and go meet them, and say to them, We are your servants, now therefore make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for, <clears throat> we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it's dry and moldy. Look at the proof of the bread. I mean, what more do you, evidence do you need? The wineskins, right? All of this, our sandals. It's been a super long journey. And then verse 14, the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So they're being deceived and they're being tricked, and the Lord knows that, but they don't bother to take the time to inquire. Now, they've already made this blunder once, haven't they, at, at, at Ai. If they would have done this at Ai, they would have known that Achan had taken uh, the money and the Babylonian garment and that God was angry at them. They could have dealt with the sin in the camp, but they instead go out and they, they, have a, they suffer defeat. They're just, you know, 30-some men, 36 men, I think it was, died there. Um, but now, they, again, they fail to take and, and inquire of the Lord as to what should we do. Um, and this is going to prove to be a problem. Um, in verse uh, 14 through 21, as they fail to seek counsel from God concerning the Gibeonites, they're going to enter into this treaty with them, um, and they do dwell in the land, and they're going to have to come, and they're going to have to um, you know, be there for them. Um, so let's keep on reading. Verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth, and Kirjasherim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel and all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath. That's an important verse, which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised. So they, they find out and they say, fine, we're not going to hurt you, but you, you came and you said you wanted to be your, our servants. Guess what? Servants you are. And so um, they were able to be a part of this. Now, in one sense, they get to come close to the things of God. They're not going to be destroyed. Um, and they, they, they want to live. You'll have to give that to them, Right? I mean, they're, they're making every effort, and so when they find this out, they're like, that's fine, just don't kill us, and we'll do this. So um, the Gibeonites, they are spared um, through this. Uh, the Israel has a, this obligation to protect them. So there's a couple of things I want us to think about from this section. Number one, we need to inquire of the Lord before we make decisions. We need to get 
before the Lord and call upon him and wait upon him until he speaks to us. And if he doesn't speak to us, then we don't move forward. You know, when you say, Lord, if you want me to move, then, you know, I think we pray like this sometimes. Lord, I'm going to step out. If you don't want me to do that, stop me. That's the wrong way to pray. You know, we don't pray for the Lord to stop us. We pray for the Lord to lead us. And um, so if the Lord doesn't speak and tell us to move and go forward or, or, or to, to draw back, then you stand right where you are. Now, if you're walking with God, you can have the confidence that the last thing he told you and place to be um, is exactly where you're supposed to be right now. So if he gives you no further marching orders, then your last ones are good ones. And so you stay there. Um, and, and I think you, is you, is this a principle that carries over into the New Testament? Are we to inquire of the Lord in the New Testament as well? And the answer is yes, absolutely. When Paul in the book of Acts was, they were on their missionary journeys, they wanted to go to Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit said no and directed them to go to Philippi. In the book of James, which we'll get to um, in you know, a couple of months, this, or, yeah, maybe not months, but a few weeks, it'll be, it'll be a while, six weeks or so, when we get to that portion of Scripture in James, it's a rebuke to the, uh, to the businessmen because they said, we're going to go buy and sell and do this and that. And the Lord says, this is arrogance. You're full of pride. You should say, if the Lord wills. Well, if you're going to say, if the Lord wills, it kind of assumes that you're seeking what? The will of God. So we absolutely are to seek the Lord. But we have to be content to wait. We talked about this on Sunday morning as well. And so we see these examples. I, I think there is a good lesson also for us in this, is that we can enter into ill-advised relationships and associations with people. That we end up being obligated to come and help. And you're going to see that in just a moment. That you're going to have to then begin to carry somebody else's water and be able to you know, get involved in somebody else's mess because you have made an alliance, an agreement, or a relationship with them. And, and now you're obligated to. You can't just turn and walk away. You know, let her yes be yes and her no be no. And, and they get that, don't they? I mean, to their credit, they're like, hey, we promised them. In the name of Yahweh, we promised them. We can't just go do them harm. Something terrible is going to come to us. So we really need to be mindful of the relationships and the associations that we make with people, whether it be personal or business or otherwise. Because you can so easily found, be found having to do something else than spending your energies and your time on and maybe even the things that God has determined for you to do for him. But because of that relationships, you're now in a commitment. And you can't just go blowing commitments up. We, we don't do that as believers. And so we end up having to deal with the consequences. Again, we'll see that here in just a moment. And so they're spared good lessons for us. Now, remember that verse where I said, hey, we can't do anything unless something come upon us? Well, in 1 Samuel 21, I think this is 1 Samuel. We'll go with 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 21, um, they are suffering a famine. And you're going to have to just check. It, it might, this might be second. But they're suffering a famine in the land. The land's not producing. And they inquire of the Lord as to why it is that this land flowing with milk and honey. And now we're generations away, you know, away from you know, this covenant that's made. 
But what ends up being revealed is that King Saul had put to death some of the Gibeonites. So he was zealous in some cases to drive out the you know, um, Amorites. And then in other cases, he allowed them to live. It depended on whether it was going to lie in his pocket or not. That's, that's what you know, kind of guided him. And there was a time when it seemed expedient to him to kill the Gibeonites. And so there was harm that came to them. And as a result of it, the Lord brought a drought upon the land and there was a famine. As they inquired of the Lord, they found out it's because they had killed the Gibeonites. So they go to the Gibeonites and they say, what do we need to do? And they're like, well, listen, we just choose seven men from the house of Saul and let us uh, deal with them. And they ended up being, you know, capital punishment was enforced upon them. And then the famine stopped and the land was blessed. So does God care about ancient promises and commandments? Evidently so. And um, this is it's just one of those things. It's interesting to see how the Bible just fits together. And you could easily be reading there um, in Samuel and wonder about this, but it, go, it goes back to this. So the point that I made applying to our life is be careful of the alliances and the relationships um, that you enter into because you may end up being kept um, you know, from being able to, what the Lord would have you to do. All right, so um, this, is, this is the relationship that they're in now with them there in chapter 9. And so let's move on into chapter 10. And we're going to see that they got to come running to help the Gibeonites. Um, and they're going to slice further across uh, the central Israel. Um, they're going to end up in a battle with five kings that are from the south, and that will be the, uh, the southern campaign. So let's read chapter 10, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua... Now, just, just in case you know, you're not quite following the chronology, this king of Jerusalem is not a king of Israel. This is a, a Canaanite king, and he is not a follower of the Lord. Israel does not have possession of Jerusalem and won't have it until the days of King David. So centuries away. Um, so they heard about this and, and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and its king. So he had done to Ai and its king. And now the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. So it's cracking, right? And as a matter of fact, right by um, Jerusalem, this is all happening. They feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and its, all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of, not Hoham, but Hoham, uh, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come, help me, uh, that we may attack Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Can you see where we're going with this, right? Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, Jarmoth, king of Lachish, Eglon, and so on, they went up, they and all their armies encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal. 
he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the people said to Joshua, do not fear them for I delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes from Beth Horon and struck them, and that would be going north, and struck them as far as Ezekiah and Mekadah. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. So <laughs> the Lord is judging them. And um, so you have your first, you know, missile-guided stones being slung. And it's not going to be the last time that this happens. But they, they're able to attack them. The Lord gets in this. Then Joshua, verse 12, spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord had delivered up the Amorites before uh, children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still. And the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. So a miracle. So let's, there's, a, there's, there's some things to unpack here. Um, the king, Adonai Zedek, he says, all right, they've got Jericho and, and they've got Ai and now they've got Gibeon. And there's one other thing that has happened, and that is um, there in chapter 8, that, you know, still in central Israel, um, um, that would be to the west of um, Gibeon, to the east of Gibeon, you have um, Shechem, and they've, they've taken this. But we don't read of a battle. All of a sudden, they're in this place where they have Mount Ebal, they have Mount Gerizim, they have Shechem, and they have this other place. So the, the country's been sliced in half. So there's this interesting thought here. You hear Adonai Zedok complaining against Gibeon and calling for other kings to help. Well, there's, there's a extra, or outside of the Bible, extra biblical account of a similar thing taking place. It's not biblically certain that it's referring to the conquest but I will put the, 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 the data out there for you to consider. So there's a, a, a letter. It's called the Armana Letters. Then uh, they were found in Egypt. And they're little, they're little clay tablets that have writing on them. And they found these, I think, like in 1887 down in Armana, Egypt. And what this is, it's, um, and there's, there's many of these letters. But they, they found correspondence between the Canaanite kings and uh, the, the, and Pharaoh, most specifically um, Amenhotep III, which is the Pharaoh that corresponds to um, a 1446 exodus and then the conquest. So um, what they end up writing in, in these things is the, the, the king of, um, oh, where's the king's king? Um, one of the Canaanite kings, um, accuses another Canaanite king, uh, Labayu, um, of, of attacking them and allying themselves with um, the Habiru, or it's H-A-B-I-R-U. It's not Hebrew. It sounds like it. And um, so he, you know, um, 
he, he's upset that Labayu, overseeing Shechem, has made this alliance with the Habiru. Now, this is written at, at the exact time of the Exodus. And so, let me just give you this little quote here about the, the Habiru. It says, It is generally understood that the Habiru was a socioeconomic term referring to a group of people who are outsiders, outcasts, fugitives, or refugees living outside of mainstream society and nomadic or semi-nomadic bands led by a prominent leader. Although not an ethnic term, so it's not Hebrews, um, and therefore not exclusively equivalent with Hebrew, the understanding of the term Habiru does appear to fit the status of the Hebrews in the narrative. So did you catch that? This is more like, it's just like, a, it's a term that you speak of people that just are wandering about, they're refugees, they're outcasts, they're outsiders, they're not part of your group, and they have a prominent leader. Well, that's exactly who the Hebrews are. And so this guy um, is writing to um, the, the, the pharaohs and saying, hey, um, you know, this gang of guys, this um, Labiu, uh, king of Shechem, he's defying you. He's, he's allowing other people. He's making treaties with other people. And you got to do something. You got to step in. You've got to help in some way. And so um, let me just uh, read. This is from one of the letters. Um, and this is um, actually from Jerusalem. And it says, are we to act like the Labiu when he was giving the land of Shechem to the Habiru, another letter, the sons of the Labiu were similarly accused of giving the land to the Habiru. However, Labiu defended himself in a, in a letter, and um, he denied any kind of association with giving the land to Shechem. But of course, he doesn't want the anger of Pharaoh to come. So you have these letters that are circulating right at the time of the conquest, referring to a nomadic group of refugees with a single leader that was giving them problems, and specifically that Shechem was given to this group of people. So why am I even bothering to talk about that? Well, I find it interesting, but there are those who say Israel, remember, that they did not come in in conquest in the 1400s, but yet you have all of this information that shows. So the idea that... Um, the king of Jerusalem, and he's calling everybody else to get involved because the Gibeonites have made a treaty. Well, that sounds very similar to what, um, you know, this one Canaanite king is complaining against, you know, uh, uh, Lapiu doing with Shechem. So there seems to be maybe a trend. That's not certain. That's not a biblical certainty. But the data points certainly line up. And, you know, I think where people are going to fall is if you believe the Bible's true, then you don't have a problem with that. It's like, yeah, that seems to make good sense. If you think that the, the conquest is just like fiction and mythology so that later Israelites could feel good about themselves, that they actually had a great entry into the land, well, then, you know, you go with other alternatives. But we believe the Bible is true. And so when we see things like this, it makes sense. Well, if we could go to that next slide, we, he calls for these kings uh, to come and you can see that they're coming from the south. Um, and you got the purple arrow coming in from Gilgal to Gibeon. And then you have these other five red lines coming up from the south. And these are the five kings that come up. And these are the five kings that are destroyed. These are the ones that are being you know, destroyed by the armies and pelted by God with hailstones. 
Um, but, the, but Joshua does something really, really amazing. He prays and he says, Lord, allow the sun there in verses 12 um, and 13 and the moon to stand still. And again, people will look at this and they'll say, okay, this is cl- clearly this can't happen. Um, and do we know how this happened? No, we don't. But the guy who made it obviously knows where the pause button is without consequence upon the rest of the planets. I don't, I mean, we understand that if, you know, you know, the, the rotation stops, I mean, there, there's, there's a problem here. But somehow God allowed this to take place and um, was, gave them the extra time to actually have victory over them. As we keep on moving through, in verse 16 down to verse 27, the enemy runs and hides down in some caves. Uh, the Israelite army finds out about this. They roll a big stone in front of that and hold them there. They go out, continue to fight. And then they end up coming back and um, dealing with them and destroying them. So um, let's see if we can pick this up. Let's see. Let's pick it up around verse 28. Well, actually, 16 through um, 27. That's where the, the, the kings are killed. Um, Let's see what verse I want to pick it up at. Um, All right, let's pick up at verse 22, and we're in chapter 10. It says, Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out these five kings to me from the cave. And they did so. And they brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings of Joshua that Joshua called for all of the men of Israel, and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, come near and put your, your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, and thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees, and they were hanging on the trees until evening. So it was at that time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded they take them down because nobody should be hanging on the tree, right? Um, and it passed uh, sundown, and this is why the Lord was taken off the cross. Cast them into the cave where they had been hidden and laid large stones at the cave's mouth. So this is, this is brutal. This is warfare. And um, these guys are struck down dead. There's a lot of similarities to this, and I'll just let you, I'll throw them out quickly for you to ponder. If you were to transliterate the name Joshua into our language, it would be what? Jesus. And, and he is fighting for them, and he's overcoming these enemies. In Colossians, we're told that our Joshua fought for us, and that he made a public spectacle over Satan, triumphing over him. And in a sense... What you have is you have the foot of Jesus being put on the neck of Satan and crushing him and destroying him. Now listen, we don't see everything under the dominion and power of the Lord yet, but we're told in Hebrews, it's coming. And so it's like a, you know, it's like a fighter who landed the knockout blow and the opponent is going down, but as he goes down, he flails about. And um, you know, then he hits the mat, but there's the technical count that has to happen. Satan's been knocked out. That happened at Calvary. He's flailing as he goes down. There's nothing more that needs to be done except for the Father's perfect timing. But we have been given victory. We have been set free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. He has conquered our enemy. And this is the reality. If you're walking under the power and the dominion of sin, 
It is because, and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it is because you have given place to him in your life. Now, what does the Bible say we should do with that? Well, it says we should resist him. It says that we should not give place to him. It talks about needing to put on the whole armor of God. It talks about, you know, being in the word and abiding in the word that we may stand against, um, you know, the enemy. This is in 1 John we read about this. These are the things we need to do. But it is important for you to be strong and courageous and know that the enemy is defeated and that your Joshua has, has done that. But if you're living under the power of sin, it is not because of a failure of Jesus. It is how you are walking out the truth and the blessings of the victory that you have in Jesus, which is a real problem to solve. And so if you find yourself in that place, I encourage you to make those necessary inquiries of the Lord. Find your brother or sister um, whom you trust and seek the face of the Lord. What does the Bible say to do? What does the Bible say to the believer to do to stand against the enemy? Find what the Bible says. Do a search and study it. You might want to start in Romans chapter 6. That is a great place to be. And to know that you've been given this victory. And this is what Joshua does for them. It's, it's, It's ceremonial. It's look at this. This is what's going to happen to all of your enemies. So in chapter, uh, chapter 10, verses 28, down to verse 39, um, Joshua goes through and he completely destroys the enemy. He's radical with them. He destroys them. Um, and the same way we're told to be radical with our sin. And this is probably a problem, you know, one of the reasons why we continue to struggle with sin as being redeemed people saved and set free, it's because we don't want to get radical with sin. Now, some of you are like, well, no, I do. Okay, then you're probably not under the power of it. But if you're under the power of it, it's because you don't want to get radical with it. And uh, this is, this is you got to search your heart, and you got to look. Jesus said, if your right eye offends you, you ought to get a patch and put it over your right eye, and make sure you, you, know, you squint real tight so you can't see out of it. Is that what he said to do? He said, if your right eye offends you, get your finger and gouge it out, rip it out, and throw it from you. Well, what is he talking about? He's speaking about how we are to deal with sin in our life. Look at how they deal with, if you will, those five kings that represent the strongholds of the enemy. Gets radical with them. And I think that a lot of times we just don't, we don't want the consequences that come from getting radical. But what the Lord said, it's better to enter into heaven with one eye than to enter into hell with two. I think you and I should listen to the Lord. In verse 43, um, we see that this is all done. Then Joshua returned in all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So that's headquarters for them. Chapter 11 leads us into the northern campaign. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of um, Hazar or Hatzar uh, heard these things that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, the king of Shimron, the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were w- from the north in the mountains in the plains of the Chinarot, the Sea of Galilee, in the lowland, and in the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, in the mountains. 
and the Hivite below Hermon, Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitudes with very many horses and chariots. This is a different battle. They've not seen this. They've, they have seen, to give you a, a comparison, they have conquered um, Jericho, which is about a nine-acre site. The enclosed portion of Ai is thought to be about two to three acres. Hatzar, 200-acre site. It is much, much larger, and they're pulling everybody in. And um, this is the preeminent city among the Amorites. This is, this is the big deal city right here. And so um, the big boy has had enough, and he's going to get into the fight. And so you can see these two maps that are going back and forth. It just gives you an idea of um, it's up in the north. Um, um, Hazar is just kind of just basically due north of the Sea of Galilee and the Hula Valley. And um, they're going to fight um, um, probably to the, to the west of that in the waters of Miram. But they're all going to come together just like they did in the south. And then they're going to begin to fight. But let's keep reading verse 5. And when all the kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. But the Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid. So that's kind of a repeated phrase here in the book of Joshua. Don't be afraid. You're going to go fight these guys. You can't even count them all. They got chariots. You haven't, you haven't had a battle like this. Don't be afraid of them. For tomorrow about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. You're not going to take the weapons of their warfare and then turn them into your weapons of warfare. Those things which are highly esteemed among men are an abomination in the sight of God. And you know, uh, the psalmist says that the horse and the chariot is a vain um, source of uh, help. It's not going to deliver, but the Lord is the strength. He's the one. But I mean, if you're in a battle... I mean, grabbing all the chariots and horses makes sense. But they, but the Lord's like, I don't want you to trust in those things. I want you to trust in me. If the sun needs to stand still, it'll stand still. If you guys aren't able to reach him, I'll just throw some hailstones at him. You're good. I want you to trust me. And we have to be warned as the church to not pick up carnal worldly methods in order to accomplish spiritual objectives. And so we, we go to the Word of God. We allow the Word. What are our tools? Well, we, we pray. We have the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit who empowers and indwells us. We have the fellowship of brethren. We have spiritual gifts that we have been given. This, this is how. We have the gospel that we proclaim. This is how we do the work of the Lord. And so often people are, we see the church picking up other methods to try and do it. Carnal methods to try and draw people in. But I can hear the words of Pastor Chuck so clearly warning us pastors over and over again. He goes, if you attain through fleshly methods, you will have to maintain through fleshly methods. So it doesn't, once you get it, and if you've used fleshly methods to get people to come, you're going to have to continue to use those fleshly methods to keep them to stay. And so I think there's such a great 
subtle lesson that kind of just bubbles up. So verse 7, Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon. So if you go back to the other map, you can kind of see um, that one arrow that kind of shoots off to the left and heads north. That, that's, they, they got him chasing that way. Um, to the brook of Mizrapah, uh, Foth, uh, and to the valley of Mizpah, eastward, they attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung the horses, burned the chariots with fire. So Joshua turned back at that time, took Hazar, or Hazar and struck its king with the sword, for Hazar was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. So it's telling us something that's pretty specific, that this was the main place, and it was in a trade route. So it's, it's easily understood why it could be so significant. They were on uh, one of the main trade routes, um, and so everything had to go through them. Verse 11, they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazar with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. So there's some specific details. And so just like at Jericho, you can go back and you can, the archaeologists have dug and they've done that at, at um, I. They've also done this here. Actually, this is one of the earliest digs. And two main men have uh, monitored the dig. And this is a, just a picture of that site. But it's 200 acres, so this was like an upper fortress that had high walls, and then there was a larger, sprawling portion of the city that was also fortified, and they say that some of these walls were as high as 30 feet. Now you think about the Israelites coming in, and in one day, they can't even number the soldiers, they end up having... Uh, bringing this defeat to this 200-acre site and then all of the other nations that had gathered around. And what they have found is that this was an amazing city, a water system, um, all kinds of temples. Uh, but as they've gone through and they dug, they have found that this city was destroyed around 1400 B.C., during the time of the conquest. But what people say is, but Israel didn't do that because Israel didn't come to 1250 B.C. So yeah, it was destroyed exactly when the, uh, you know, the Bible says it was destroyed. It's the exact same time, but we don't think Israel was there because we don't believe the Bible. But there is all of this other evidence that shows that Israel was in the land at this time. They find the ash layer. They found that you know, three of the temples were um, destroyed. The idols were beheaded. Um, carved images were, were, were um, you know, beat with hammers, things they worship. And so there was a, an attack against the gods that they worshiped exactly as they were told. Another interesting thing about this site is that when they came, they, they found two burn layers. They found one in the 15th century that would have correlated with what we just read, Joshua. But they also saw that after that, that nobody inhabited the city. Um, and then in the 13th century, it was destroyed again with a burn layer, which perfectly lines up with, I think it's Judges chapter 4, when Deborah and Barak go and destroy the city of um, Hazar again. And then after that, 
the Israelites take up residence in this. And, and as they go through the strata of the archaeology, this is exactly what it's showing. So why am I taking so much time over the, all these weeks? Because it, I just want it to be in your head that the Bible is accurate, that the archaeology does back up what we read in scriptures. And, and listen, the ground has been seeded by the most Christian scholars for years. Well, it's just wrong. It's just wrong. Yep, it's, it's just, you can't trust it. But praise God for those that are out there and they are doing this work and it's a growing wave of um, Bible-believing Christians that are doing the research and doing the digging and going back through. And what they're finding is that, man, the, you know, the information has just not been applied properly. All of the data is there. They just didn't apply it properly. And so I want you to know when somebody says, well, they weren't even in the land at this time. You know, you can't trust it. Um, we mentioned the name, uh, uh, we saw the name Jabin King um, of Hatsar. And this has been another point of controversy because this name comes up a couple of other times. Um, it comes up in the 18th century on the Babylonian tablet, so long before um, Joshua was in the land. Um, we see it in the, in, well, we just read it here in Joshua, and you're going to read it again in Judges. So people are like, listen, the Bible doesn't even match. The name comes up all over the time. It's not trustworthy. But there are two really simple explanations. Maybe the same name was being used. So, um, you know, I think you can find some times in history when the name has been used. I wonder what people would do if we didn't have great records and they saw George W., the first president, and they saw another George W., president of the United States. Okay, different last name. But you wonder, would people get confused about well, who was this? I mean, there are different times. Maybe the accuracy No, it's, the name was used twice. So that's a really simple explanation. The other is that Jabin is actually a dynastic title like Pharaoh. And um, that's, I think, where most people land. But there are options. That's, that's all I want to say. Now look at verse 19 with me um, in uh, this section. So verses 19 and 20. It says, there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all the others they took in battle. For it was the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, that he might receive no, they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses and as had been prophesied to Abraham. Um, in the days of Noah, God no longer was willing to strive with man, and judgment came. Uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and judgment came upon him. And now these Canaanites who have walked in sin for 400 years, in gross sin for 400 years, he is hardening their hearts that they might be judged. That's a fearful thing, isn't it? To think that God, and not just to think, but to know that God, intervenes and says no your heart is going to be hardened and you're not going to continue on. Oh, the time is going rather fast. Okay, um, look at verse 21 um, with me. We're still there in chapter 11. And at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim. Who are the Anakim? They're the giants, okay? From the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the mountains of Judah and from all the mountains of Israel, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. And none of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. 
that remained only in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod, um, which are what? Philistine locations. So there's, a, you know, think of Goliath of where? Gath. So Joshua took the whole land according to all uh, the Lord had said Moses, uh, to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to the divisions of their tribes. Then the land rested from war. So, yeah, there, he's having victory. The very thing that they were afraid of was giants and walled cities. And now here we are in chapter 11 and they're already being taken care of. Walled cities up to heaven and giants have all fallen. In chapter 12, um, get a summary of the kings and the land that were conquered by Moses and Joshua. So in verses 1 through 6, um, you have a summary um, of what Moses had done. Notably, um, he had killed Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, on the east side of the Jordan. And then in chapter 7, uh, verses 7 through 24, and I'm not going to read all those names um, there. I'm going to let you read them because you can pronounce them better than I can. But go down to verse 24. All the kings were 31. So um, two notable kings were killed by Moses. 31 notable kings were killed by Joshua in his time of battle and warfare. Into chapter 13... Um, we get a division of land and the unconquered territory. Um, so look at verse 1. Now Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you're old, advanced in years. And the, I mean, you're real old if God tells you you're old, right? Um, and there remains very much uh, land yet to be possessed. This is the land that yet remains. All the territory of the Philistines and all of the Gershites, and it goes on down through that list. So if we put up that map, you can see there, um, everything that is in the pink is what they conquered. Everything in the green is what he's going to describe. That's all the land. So there's more work to be done. Um, you know, they, they got it done pretty quickly. Like in seven years, they, they did this. So, I mean, this is, this is a good thing, but they're going to have to continue to press on. They're going to have to continue to deal with more kings. It's not, 31 is not enough. They're going to have to fight more kings. There's going to be more battles. Um, but Joshua, you're old, and let's just make the borders of what needs to be done. And I think this, as you just look at this map, just let us speak to you for a moment of your own life. Have you conquered all the areas that the Lord has given to you? Or is there still some green out there? Is there maybe a temper that's not been surrendered to the Lord? Or there's some lust? Or there's some materialism or bitterness? Or maybe there's something you haven't been willing to deal with. You've had some great victories. I mean, you read, you read the first 12 chapters of your life and it's like, wow, 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 wow. You killed giants. You did this. You did that. But there's still other giants out there. There's still more territory to go and to fully possess. And Paul realized in his own walk with the Lord um, in the book of Philippians that there's still more battles to fight. Let, let's read what Paul said. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. This is from the New Living Translation. It says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, 
But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. It's kind of a way to make certain everybody agrees, right? Because if you don't, then you're spiritually immature. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we've already made. What's this? Hey, we are pressing on, but we are not finished. So what's that? Joshua, you you made great progress, but don't get complacent. Let everybody know where the battles still lie. You've made great progress possibly in your walk with the Lord. But don't get lazy. Don't get complacent. Keep pressing on. Immature Christians don't press on. It's the mature Christian that is pressing on. And so this is, I think, a great lesson for us to just visually picture for ourselves. They got part of the land. But what is that? I mean, be specific in your own heart and mind. What is that area that I know I've got to deal with? Maybe there's an area of ministry that you've got to step out into. But you haven't stepped out into it because... There's some big boys over there. There's giants over there. And I don't want to do that. Well, as you keep on reading through this chapter, um, in verses 7 through 33, you get a division of land for the two and a half tribes on the east. So, Joshua, this is the land you got. Here's the land that you didn't. Then in verses 7, down over to verse 33, he talks about um, the tribes on the east side. Remember those, that uh, Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. Um, they're going to stay on the east side because it's great grazing land for their cattle. And you can kind of see that, you know, on the right-hand side, um, you have those tribes. It's, I think it's like, kind of like a peach color. It's like a turquoise color and a green color. Those, it's Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. And that's your land over there. Now, there was east Manasseh and there was west Manasseh, right? So that tribe split in half and ended up being on both sides of the Jordan, and it is the Jordan River that kind of splits um, this map in two. So that, that's their land. There is the land that they got, there's the land that they didn't get, the two and a half tribes on the east, that's what their division looked like. And then into chapter 14, and I love chapter 14. In uh, chapter 14, we're gonna see the division of the land was by lot. Okay, not by lobbying, but by lot, except for Caleb. So Joshua and Caleb, the two spies that gave a good report. And so chapter 14, let's just look at verse 1. It says, these are the areas which the children of Israel inherited the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed as an inheritance to them. Their inheritance was by lot. So God was the one that was controlling this. He was, this is not just simple, you know, gambling with dice. Don't think of it like this. This is God ordained. I will tell you as you cast the lots, who is going to get what land, which really it took any kind of favoritism out of it. And God says, this is what you're going to get. And so that is exactly um, what happened. Um, so it was by lot, the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine tribes and the half tribe. For Moses had given the inheritance to the two tribes and the half tribe on the other side. So this is how they're doing it. However, in, in uh, Caleb, he is of the tribe of Judah, 
but he's going to get something specific. So look at verse 6. Then the children of Israel, or the children of Judah, came to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephna, the Kenazite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me at Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him that was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. So there's special favor that's being shown for this obedience. And now verse 10, Behold, the Lord has kept me alive. As he said, these 45 years, so he's 85, right? Ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now here I am this day, 85 years old, and I'm still as strong as an ox, right? I'm just as strong as I was on that day. So I'm ready for war. Verse 12, now therefore give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day, for you heard in that day how the Anakim, who are the Anakim? The giants how the giants were there, and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephna, as an inheritance. Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephna, the Kenazite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord. And Hebron, formerly uh, Kirjath Arba, Arba was the greatest man of the Anakim, then the, Lord, uh, then the land had rest from war. So he's like, all right, I know I'm an old guy, but I'm still really, really strong. And you know that God said, I got the, get this land. So give me the mountains and give me the giants. This is going to stand in contrast. I don't think we're going to get to it. To um, a couple of other tribes that are going to ask for more land. And Joshua's going to say, okay, yeah, you do need more land. So I'm going to give you um, uh, the forest and we give you giants. And they're like, yeah, but that's hard. We don't, we don't want that. He's like, that's your land. <laughs> that's kind of how the conversation goes. But for Caleb, he's like, I may be old, but I'm not done. And there's a promise that God gave me. And I want to walk it out. I don't want the little slush valley where we've already come. Don't give me Gilgal. Gilgal's already done. You know, don't give me Shechem. That was handed over to me. Don't give me the Gibeonites, they're rollovers. I want to fight the giants, and I want the mountains. And I, this, to me, just speaks of the kind of faith and zeal we ought to have, not only when we're 40, but when we're 85. That we don't retire, we don't quit in the kingdom of God. You may retire from your job, you may slow down even in ministry, but you don't quit and I just want to speak this word to all of you young people and to all of you old people. Our culture does not tell us what to do in retirement. Our Lord tells us what to do in retirement. We don't take our marching orders from what everybody else does and what all everybody thinks should be done. We wait to hear from the Lord. So even in his advanced years, I mean, you know, like Joshua, you're old, Caleb. He says, I still want to fight. I still want to go. There is this tendency, and we're just going to end right here in chapter 14. There is this tendency to protect what we, what we get. 
you, you, you know, you start off and you have nothing. You know, when Rebecca and myself first got married, if our house got robbed, it would have been no big deal. I mean, we would have had to go and buy some more clothes and yeah, you know, we slept on the floor. Um, you know, <laughs> we didn't have anything. It didn't matter. And, and when we made the decision to go to Australia and just to, um, you know, have the little bit of support that we had and really had to trust the Lord. I mean, we had nothing to lose. And, and, and we were walking by faith, so we weren't like, well, we've got nothing to lose. It wasn't like a, you know, shrug your shoulders moment. It was a step of faith going out into what the Lord had for us. Uh, and then, you know, when we came back, well, we had gained a little bit in those two years. We, we had you know, a few things. Nothing that anybody wanted to buy when we left. But, I mean, you know, we had a few things that were important to us. And, and so then, we, you know, we came back home, and, you know, we had a life there. And so it was a little, little scarier. And then we went on staff at, you know, um, at Calvary Chapel Vista. And we spent, you know, a handful of years, four and a half, five years there. And we had some children, and we were back with our family. And, you know, I had a, um, a ministry position that I loved with a, a church that I loved, serving under our pastor uh, you know, and staff that we loved. We, we were grateful to be there. But then when we were coming out here, it was kind of like, well, you know, we're leaving this behind. But, you know, we were still young and we did that. And then as the years have gone by and in each incremental kind of, um, how can I describe it? I guess not each incremental, but in, in significant moments of the life of Calvary Chapel Lynchburg, there's been times where more stuff has accumulated more people have accumulated, more staff has accumulated, more assets, more property has accumulated. And I would be lying to you if I, you know, said I don't ever think about all of those things when I'm, you know, we're making decisions. I do think about them. They've never been something to keep us back from stepping out. But um, I, I'll just, I'm being very honest with you and we're walking by faith and we're moving forward and we're meeting with people tomorrow. So I'm not retreating. But I, just to be honest, in my mind, there is this voice that just says, isn't it big enough? And the Lord said to me, it wasn't your business when the church was small and it's not your business when the church is big. It's my church. You just do what I tell you to do. But there's a lot of people on staff, a lot of salaries. But, you know, we got this property. If we go in debt. I mean, how are we going to pay for this? I'm getting older now. I'm not 27. I'm nearly 57. So, and, and, and so all of that is we have stuff to lose now. We have stuff to lose. When we moved from this little building over here, you know, Timber Oak Court, you know, 21 Timber Oak Court, Suite C, then B, and then whatever the other one was, grand total of, you know, 3,000 square feet of ministry space. You know, we didn't have much to lose. We had something to lose, but then we got to the other place, and now we come here, and now we're thinking about this. And so I'm just trying to be very candid with you. I understand those feelings. I understand those calculations that we make in life. And the longer you go on, the more you accumulate. But we need to be like Caleb. And it's like, God told me he had something for me. And I think the word for, you know, to all of us is not to pound our chest with you know, fleshly bravado and go do something dangerous. That, that's not the point of the message. Is do what the Lord has told you to do. And don't let the stuff that you have to lose keep you back from stepping out. And so if you've made it to that retirement or you're staring retirement in the end and you're like, well, I gotta be careful. No, I can't do this. Why can't you do that? 
Can God not throw hailstones down at people anymore? I mean, he can still do whatever he wants. And so we have this fear that creeps in. We have this thing, yeah, but I got a lot to lose. Do you? Do I? Do we? Really? I mean, do we really have a lot to lose? I think, and I'll close with this, of that, that, um, that student that was in the prophecy school, and it came, they had outgrown the prophecy school, and they had to build a bigger one. And I think it was with the prophet Elijah, and he borrowed an axe to go cut down some trees. And while he was chopping, he's a prophet, he's not a carpenter, and he loses the axe head. Now, he still has the handle, but the axe head's what's, I mean, think back then, that's what's valuable. He's like, oh no, I've lost the axe head. And what he says to the prophet is, alas, master, for it was what? Does anybody know what the word is? It was borrowed. It's not mine. And that is the truth for all of us. Everything we have has been borrowed. So let's just be faithful to do what God has called us to do. Father, thank you for your word. And um, we want to be like Joshua. We want to be like Caleb. We don't want to be governed by fear. Lord, we don't want to hold back and draw back and shrink back and get um, focused on self. Lord, we want it to have to be that you come to us and say, all right, old guy, old lady, it's time for you to slow down a bit. Lord, that's what we want to hear. We don't want to be putting the brakes on prematurely. And so help us, whether we're 40 or 50 or 20 or 80, whatever it is, Lord, help us to follow you and to trust you that you're going to give us the mountains and you're going to give us the giants, even in our old age. So Lord, we pray for the giants of our culture. We pray for the young hearts and minds that are being deceived. We pray for those that have walked away from you and are being held captive by the enemy. Our children, our grandchildren, aunts, uncles, parents, brothers and sisters that have walked away and are held captive. Lord, we we want to go get them for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. Lord, we want to be about the work of evangelism until the day you return. So Lord, put some zeal within our heart that was found in good old faithful Caleb's heart. In the name of Jesus, we pray.